So uh, this morning, I get the privilege of wrapping up our series on the final seven sayings of Jesus. These are the, the final seven sentences that Jesus said while he was on the cross uh, shortly before his death. Um, and so as I'm wrapping it up, this morning we'll actually be looking at his very last words. Um, and I want to point out also that this morning is Palm Sunday. Um, so it's the beginning of Passion Week. We're not going to be necessarily focusing on what took place during Palm Sunday. Pretty much we're going to be looking at what happens on Good Friday. But um, I do want to stress the fact that this is the beginning of Passion Week, Holy Week, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I bring that up because before we even get started, I really want to encourage all of us as a church to spend time this week reflecting on Jesus' story. Um, I kind of did the math a little bit before um, as I was preparing for the sermon, and if you take the four Gospels, so we take the four accounts of Jesus' life, a man who lived for roughly 33 years, if you look at how much of the Gospels are attributed to just this final week of his life, it's roughly 25%. So a man who lived 33 years the accounts that we have in Scripture of his entire life, 25% of them are just devoted to his final week. That should reinforce to us the importance and significance of them. Um, so spend time going back through Jesus' seven sayings. Maybe listen to the sermons again that we've just preached over the last seven weeks. Study what happened during this final week of Jesus' life nearly 2,000 years ago. Um, we should do that every, every day. Um, we should meditate on what took place um, during this week. But uh, there's no better time of the year to be doing it as we lead up to Good Friday and to, to Easter Sunday. Um, so immerse yourself in his story. The reality is that one of our greatest mistakes as human beings is that we think that we're at the center of the world. We live as though our lives are a book and we are the main characters that the whole story revolves around. We think the main plot line centers around us. I, I know I'm guilty of that. And I, that's evident in the way that I think through decisions, the priorities that I make, just the things that I have devote my time and attention to. They're all things with me at the center of them. I think of myself as the main character in the story that is my life. But I'm not. You're not. Jesus is. The main character in every one of our stories is Jesus, whether we recognize that or not. And we're just the minor characters who are brought into his storyline. And that's why this week is such a blessing, at least it is for me. Every year at this time, I try to spend this week focusing on the Bible's account of Jesus' final week as a reminder to myself that my story is a part of his much greater one, not the other way around. This time of the year is a really good reset for me in that regard. Um, so I want to encourage you, to, if you, if you don't already plan on doing so, I, I encourage you to do that as well. Spend some time really devoting your attention to what happened during Jesus' final week and what are the cosmic 
spiritual consequences of those events. Um, and do that even this morning as we look at Jesus' final words and death. So with that kind of posture set before us for this morning, I want us to look at Luke 23, verses 44 through 49. Um, that's on page 884, I believe, in the Black Pew Bibles there in front of you. Uh, so as you turn there, like I said, um, we're going to be looking at the account of Jesus' death. We're going to see his final words, and then we'll actually be looking at his death. So his final words only make up one of these verses, but I do want us to, to look at this paragraph as a whole because it helps us see the significance of what Jesus' words actually meant. So um, with that said, let me read from Luke 23, verses 44 through 49. Follow along with me as I read. This is, this is God's word. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, to get to the heart of this passage, why does Luke share this with us? We have to understand why Luke wrote this entire book in the first place. And he tells us, he tells us right at the beginning, if you, if you want, you don't have to, but if you want to flip back to Luke 1, he tells us in Luke 1 verse 4, he lays out his goal for the reason that he wrote this entire gospel account he says his goal is to write an orderly account, and it's directed to Theophilus, but it's true for us as well, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke wants us to be certain of something. And the details he's including here in this paragraph, in the account of Jesus' death, are meant to prove his case. He's trying to prove something for us so that we might be certain of it. And the details he's including here all assure us of that fact. So then the question that's begged of us is, what is Luke trying to prove? And this is what I want us to recognize, that in Luke 23, verses 44 through 49, Luke wants us to be certain of one primary thing, and that is that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. Every detail that Luke includes is meant to prove that fact, as, as we'll see as we work our way through the, through the text. And at the heart of that proof is Jesus' own final words. The whole point of this sermon series is to look at what Jesus' words are. And as we'll look at those final words that he he said just before he died, we'll see how they are actually the greatest example and reinforcement of his sonship. 
to the Father, God. And so that's what I want us to, to really recognize as we approach the text this morning, that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. And this entire passage, every detail of it, reinforces that reality to us. And it climaxes in Jesus' own words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So here's my aim for us this morning. My prayer for all of us is that we would see the incredible ways that Jesus' final moments prove that, that he is the glorious and holy Son of God. And we'll see that in three major ways. I'm kind of breaking up the text. Um, I want to make sure that you understand how I'm breaking up the text. First, we're going to look at nature's response to Jesus' death. There's some incredible events that are taking place here, and they're actually the first couple verses. We're going to look at the first couple verses then the last couple verses, and then we're going to come back to Jesus' own words right in the middle of the text. So that's how we're going to approach the text this morning. So our first point, we're going to be looking at how nature responds and supernatural events that are taking place as Jesus is dying. Then we're going to see how people respond to Jesus. Not how nature's responding, but how the people are responding, having seen Jesus' final moments on the cross. And how those things even point us to his, that he, the fact that he's the son of God. Then we are again, like I said, going to come back to the crux. We're going to come back to his own final words and sentence and see how that highlights that most greatly. And so that's how we're going to approach the text. And my hope in all of this is that Luke's reminder to us of who Jesus is will make him that much more of the central figure in each of our lives. My goal and hope and prayer this morning is that each one of us will walk away this morning seeing a little bit, at least a little bit more clearly why Jesus really is the main character of our lives. It's not us, it's him. I want us to see that by looking at the account of his death this morning. So, with that said, let's turn back to Luke. Each detail, as I've already said, that he includes is worth of our attention. So let's consider each one of them now. And we're going to first look at how nature responds to his death. And Luke starts this section of text, the first couple of verses, by highlighting two major events that we're going to see. I'm calling them nature's response to his death, but... That might not actually be the best way to describe them because they're really anything but natural events. They're very supernatural events. Um, We're going to see the darkness that came over the land, um, and we're going to see the mysterious tearing of the curtain in the temple of Jerusalem. And I want us to really take some time to consider the, the significance of each one of those occurrences. And I want us to... Um, yeah, give each time to each one of those things. So first, I want us to, to think about the darkness that came upon the land. I know David briefly brought this up in, in a previous sermon or two in the series, but I want us to really spend some time reflecting on it. So look back at, at verses 44 and 45 with me. Luke says this, it was, on, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. So what do we have here? What we've got here is a supernatural dark, darkening of the sun 
from noon until 3 p.m. that cannot be accounted for by natural means. Um, This is the thing. Astronomers know the movement of the planet. They know the movement of the sun. They They know the movement of the moon. Scientists can predict when eclipses are going to happen in the past and in the future. Scientists know because they know the movement of the, again, the sun, moon, and our planet. So we know when eclipses are going to take place. But there should not have been an eclipse on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. But, nevertheless, something like an eclipse did take place. And our scientifically-minded kind of society and culture is going to want to ask the question of how. We want a natural explanation. We want to know how this happened. But that's not the question Luke wants us to be asking ourselves. The proper question to be asking right now is why. It's like, it did happen. If you go back in historical literature, nobody questions the fact that this actually happened. You don't see any, even the Greco-Roman and atheistic historians at the time, none of them questioned the fact that this happened. It did happen. So the question is, why did it happen? That's far more important than even the how it happened. So why was the sun darkened at this particular time? And Scripture points us to a spiritual, not simply a natural answer. Think about the ninth plague that God had Moses call down on Egypt. Total darkness settled over the land for three days. I I bring that up to point out the fact that Scripture frequently uses darkness to represent sin and or the judgment of God upon that sin. And that is exactly what is playing out right here as Jesus is dying on the cross. As Jesus hung there, he bore the sin of humanity on his shoulders. At the same time, he also bore the wrath of God as punishment for those sins was dealt to him. So we see the darkness has incredible significance. The symbolism cannot be overlooked. Not only is the sin of humanity brought to the focal point right here on the cross with Jesus, but so is the judgment of God upon him as he dealt with that sin for us. The darkness during Jesus' final hours represented both the sin and the judgment that he endured. But it it didn't just symbolize and represent that. It also expressed a great and terrible grief and loss. Listen as I read a couple of verses from the book of Amos. Um, If you don't know, because Amos was a pretty minor prophet that not a lot of people know about, Amos was a prophet from roughly 750 B.C. So he was alive over 700 years before Jesus was born. And during his time as a prophet, um, he had many visions of what was to come in the future. And what I'm about to read is one of those visions. So as, as I was 
reading this myself, I was just like dumbstruck by what I was reading. So listen to the details here. This is from Amos Amos 8, verses 9 and 10. He wrote this. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. Here we go. I will make it like the morning for an only son. Morning not as in like the morning the sun's coming up. Morning as in grief. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Isn't that incredible? Amos prophesied Jesus' death with remarkable precision over 700 years before it happened. And he sheds light on why the world went dark. I mean, he even says, the sun will go down at noon. When did this happen? It happened from noon to 3 p.m. He is explaining precisely why the sun went dark. And what is his explanation? That it's because of mourning for an only son. The darkness is not only symbolizing the sin of mankind and the wrath and judgment of God, it is demonstrating the grief of God that such an act was even necessary. The darkness is an expression of cosmic mourning. And again, like the mourning for an only son, as the passage says. But here's the thing. It wasn't only the mourning like for an only son. It was the mourning as for an only son. It was for God's only son. Jesus is the Son of God. The three hours of darkness that culminated in Jesus' death was meant to demonstrate his cosmic significance. Think about when there's the death of a large public figure, like the death of a king or queen or just someone really important or culturally relevant. The depth of mourning that is displayed at someone's death oftentimes demonstrates the importance of the person who has died. Friends, the darkness here is meant to be an expression of grief that only the Son of God could be worthy of. The sun does not darken supernaturally for three hours for anyone else's death, but it did for Jesus because he is the Son of God. Luke goes on, though, to describe another event that took place to reinforce that even further. And that's the event of the curtain in the temple being torn in two. So let's look back at verse 45. We'll, start, we'll look at the second half of that verse. So right after the sun's light has failed, it says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So here's a detail that Luke includes, that the people at the cru- crucifixion interestingly enough, would not have known about right away. Think about that. This is happening in the temple. They aren't in the temple right now. So the people who are witnessing Jesus' crucifixion aren't even going to know that this is happening yet. They'll find out about it afterwards, but they didn't know about it at the time. While they watched Jesus, Jesus die, another incredible event was taking place inside the temple itself. 
As Jesus died, the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place was being supernaturally torn in two, like I've already said. And Luke's account doesn't include this next detail, but Matthew and Mark are very specific about how it was torn. Um, It's interesting. They are very specific to mention that it was torn from top to bottom. Both Matthew and Mark highlight that fact. Um, And I believe that they include that specific detail to show how unusual this was. So think about it. If a person was going to tear this curtain that we're talking about, which would have basically have already have been impossible given that it is an enormous, very thick curtain that someone's not going to be able to just tear by themselves. Um, If a person was going to tear it, even if it was possible, they were going to have to start at the bottom and work their way up. It's attached dozens of feet up. They're not going to be able to tear it from the top. They're going to have to start at the bottom and try to tear it from the bottom. But that's not how it happens. It tears from the top to the bottom. And the way that it was torn shows that no mere human could have done it. This is a profound supernatural event that is taking place. This event happening at the same time as Jesus' death signified, like the darkness, what Jesus was accomplishing on the cross To understand that, it's important to understand the reason that the curtain was there in the first place. Within the temple in Jerusalem, there were two primary spaces. Most of us probably don't know about how the temple was, like, structured, but kind of imagine this with me. Imagine you're looking in front of you at the the temple in Jerusalem. When you walk in to the 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 front main doors, which pretty much only the priests could, you walk in and you enter this large rectangular room. Um, So it's long lengthwise, so you're looking the far end is far away from you. Very large rectangular room. You have now entered the holy place. This is where many of the priestly duties were fulfilled. This is where they burned the incense and, and did many different things. So you walk in, and you've entered the holy place. This is where the priests are doing things. You'll notice the far end of the room, the far end of the hall that you're in, there is no wall there. Instead, there's this massive, massive curtain that blocks your view of what is on the the other side of it. What is on the other side of that is the most holy place. The most holy place was where There was almost nothing in it except that is where the Ark of the Covenant was stored. The most holy place was where God's presence most powerfully resided within the temple and amongst the community of the Israelites. Sorry, I've completely lost my place at this point. Um, The most holy place, and, and remember this, the most holy place was only entered once a year on the Day of Atonement. Only the high priest could go in there once a year, and he could only do that after spending an entire week performing purification rituals and cleansing rituals upon himself. Someone had to be incredibly pure and holy to be able to step foot 
in the most holy place. That's how holy it was, how precious of a place it was. Almost none of the Israelites ever got to behold even what was behind that curtain. But that's where God's presence most powerfully resided in the temple. To the Jews, if one was going to enter into the presence of God, he or she would have to go there. The problem was almost no one ever could, like I was just saying. The separation of the most holy place with the curtain from the rest of the temple showed how God was, though present with his people, nevertheless still very much apart from them. In a very visible way, the Israelites were reminded by the curtain of how their sin separated them from God. However, Jesus, by dying on the cross, tore down that division between God and man. That is why the curtain was torn in two. God could not be approached before. Even the Israelites, the very people of God, the people who he chose to be his people, were cut off from him because of their sin and rebellion. But Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for sins in ways in which no bulls, which no doves, which no none of the lambs, and everything that was sacrificed before him, all of them were imperfect. But he was the perfect sacrifice for sins, and through his death, we gain access to God. That is why the curtain was torn in two. We may draw near to him now, and we don't even have to go to the temple to do it. Could you imagine needing to go all the way to Jerusalem just to be near to God? That's what it was like for the Israelites at the time. We take for granted the access that we have to God on this side of the cross. We can draw near to God from anywhere through our faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That didn't used to be the case, but we can be assured that that is the case now because the curtain was torn in two. And by including this detail, which happened in a sense off camera, Luke is pointing to the incredible work that only, again, the Son of God could accomplish Because Jesus truly is the Son of God, his death on the cross made a way for us to God. Nature itself, in both of these examples, powerfully demonstrated who Jesus was and what he accomplished. More could be said on that, but we've got to keep moving on. So let's turn our attention now to the people who witnessed Jesus' final moments and how they responded. Not only do we see nature and like the cosmos itself responding powerfully to Jesus's death, but we see people responding similarly. So let's turn our attention to that for my second point. Not only did nature proclaim Jesus to be the son of God as he died, but so did the people who were present, as we'll see. I want to draw our attention to two kind of different groups. First, we're going to look at the centurion, and then we're going to look at the crowds that witnessed Jesus's death. So first, the centurion. Look with me at verse 47 in Luke 23. Back to our text. It says this. So this is after Jesus has said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Um, And he breathed his last. So this is immediately following Jesus' final breath and his death. 
we see this, verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. So this is the most explicit reminder that Luke gives us in this entire passage of who Jesus was, though at first glance it might not necessarily seem that way. We see in Luke's account that the centurion is proclaiming Jesus as, as what? He's not saying that he's the son of God. He's saying that he's innocent. However, Matthew and Mark recorded a little bit differently. If you looked at both of those books, you would see that both Ma- Matthew and Mark record, they record two things. They record that, one, there was an earthquake, which I didn't even address in my first point because Luke doesn't mention it. But Matthew and Mark mentioned that not only was there darkness, and the curtain being torn in two, but there was also an earthquake taking place when Jesus was dying. Again, the cosmos itself groaning over what's taking place. But there's an earthquake that takes place to join the other supernatural signs, and that's when the centurion saw everything that was happening, and he proclaims with awe, truly this was the Son of God. So that's what Matthew and Mark say he said. Truly, This was the Son of God. So why the difference? Is this a discrepancy? I've I've read, if you read about people who are critical of the reliability of the gospel accounts, you'll see people say, well, see, this is a discrepancy that's proving that this isn't actually true. They're just making this up to say what they want to say. But no, the difference is understandable if you understand if you remember why Jesus was being charged and executed in the first place. Think about it. When, G- when the Jewish council brought Jesus before Pontius Pilate, they were accusing him of blasphemy and stirring up riots because he was calling himself the Son of God and the King of the Jews. That's what they were accusing of him of. That's the charges that were presented against him. That's what he was found guilty of, and that's why he was being executed, because he was claiming to be the Son of God. So when he was executed, it was on the grounds that he was falsely claiming that. Therefore, for the centurion to say that Jesus was in fact innocent, not guilty, as Luke's account says, he's also affirming that Jesus' claim that he was the Son of God was true. Just as Matthew and Mark's accounts say. So what was likely the case here and why the different gospel accounts are saying it slightly differently is that Luke is likely quoting the centurion verbatim while Matthew and Mark are paraphrasing what he said. They're not They're not deceiving us. They're not saying that he said something else. They're just paraphrasing what he said to show the theological point that the centurion was making with his claim that Jesus was innocent. Do you see the difference there? They're they're not lying. They're paraphrasing because they're saying there was much more to the centurion's statement than just saying this man was innocent. By him saying that, He's saying Jesus was the Son of God. So they're just communicating and paraphrasing that to show that that theological point the centurion was making. There's no, there's no falsehood here. There's no lying here. They're just, as they're communicating the truth, they're showing the theology behind what is happening. But 
with that aside, getting back to my point, the centurion understood what was going on here. As Jesus was dying, the sun went dark and there was an incredible earthquake. We, I mean, we even see, if you look at the other gospel accounts, particularly Matthew, you'll see that it split open many tombs and then after Jesus was resurrected, others were resurrected along with him and actually came out of those tombs that were split open during this earthquake. Again, reinforcing who Jesus was. But that happened at his resurrection, so I'm not going to focus on that. Um, but, but anyway, so there's the sun went dark. There's this incredible earthquake. The centurion recognized that these were the signs of creation crying out because of what was happening here. The whole cosmos was acting out against the atrocity that was taking place. As he died, the reality as Jesus died, the reality of the situation finally hit the centurion. Jesus really was the Son of God. He was exactly who he had claimed to be. He was innocent. The centurion wasn't the only one who recognized that, though. The crowds came to the same kind of realization, as we'll see in the, the next verse, their reaction was very different than the centurions. He praised God at the recognition. They responded quite a bit differently, but they still came to the same realization. And again, both of the responses reinforce and provide us that certainty that Luke wants us to recognize, that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. So look with me again at verse 48. Luke 23, 48 says, And all the crowds, so this is right after the centurion, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, so the people that are seeing Jesus dying, and I, that just blows my mind that the word spectacle is used to describe a man being crucified. But, but that's, that's what it says. And all the crowds had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. So this is an interesting detail that Luke includes because Matthew and Mark, in some ways, provide more detail than Luke does at, the, at his account of Jesus' death, but he's the only one that includes this detail. Matthew and Mark uh, don't mention this. Both of them just move on from the centurion to looking at and turning their attention to the female followers of Jesus as they're approaching and leading into the account of his resurrection. They're turning their attention to the female followers because they're ultimately the ones that are going to find Jesus and know that he was rec resurrected. But, and Luke does that too. He just does that in verse 49. But before he does that, he has verse 48, and he draws his attention to the crowds and how once they see what has happened, they they go home beating their breasts. So why does he include that? The key is knowing what that gesture that they're doing meant to the Jews at the time. When they were beating their breasts, as Luke is saying, they were using a common physical expression for grief, shame, and repentance. They they would do that sign. That was a common thing that someone would do at that period of time to acknowledge that they had done something terribly wrong and they're acknowledging that. 
So the crowds beating their breasts was a sign that they were ashamed because like the centurion, they realized after all that has just happened that they had murdered an innocent man. They, they recognize that. That's why they are doing this. They are grieved by what they have done. And they're doing it because they haven't just murdered an innocent man. They have murdered the Son of God. Luke's recording of the different reactions from the centurion and the crowds, think about it, highlight a profound reversal taking place. As Jesus lived, he could not convince them of who he truly was. They ridiculed and mocked him. They tortured him, and eventually they executed him, as we obviously see here. But by dying, of all things, by dying, he opened their eyes to who he was, who they tried to deny him to be. In death, he was vindicated. He proved them wrong and proved himself to be the Son of God. It makes me think about Philippians 2. Think about, think about what um, Paul says in, in Philippians 2. He says this, and notice the connection here. And being found in human form, this is talking about Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I so often when I think about that passage think about the future. I think about um, end times when Jesus comes back and then everyone finally acknowledges him to be who he really is. But the reality is, what Paul is saying here was already starting to be fulfilled the moment Jesus died. As he died on the cross, people began to see and to be convicted about who he was. It's just an extraordinary fulfillment of Scripture that I was reflecting on last night. But as compelling as all of those details are, all that we've looked at in the how nature responded and how the people responded, Jesus' own words carry the greatest weight, actually, in proving his identity. So that's what I want us to turn our attention to now. Look with me at Luke 23, verse 46. It says this, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, I want us to think about Jesus' actual words. We're going to take time to look at them and what they mean. But before we do that, I want us to take a moment to consider how he's saying them. These are Jesus' final words. He is about to die. He has been on the cross at this point for nearly six hours. He's in excruciating pain. He is overheated. He is dehydrated. He's in a body position that would make it nearly impossible to even take a breath, 
unless he pushes down and stands upon his own feet, which, as you'll remember, are nailed to a piece of wood. So as he's pushing down to stand up so that he can say anything, he is tearing open the wounds in his feet even worse. This is the state that Jesus is in as he's saying these words. And how does he say them? He doesn't say them as a whisper, which would itself be hard enough to do as it is. He says them with a loud voice. Jesus, in the midst of all of this that he is enduring, he is shouting out these words in a loud voice. Just think about the willpower and strength needed for Jesus to do what he's doing right here. This is a man of incredible resolve. He wants these words that he has shared with us to be of significance and authority for us. And again, that brings us back to what are they? If they are so significant and authoritative that he is using the last bit of his strength to shout them to everyone, what are they? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So let's consider what those words mean. So first, I want us to think about the fact that he starts off, Father. He directs his statement to Father. Now, it's easy for for us to just immediately know that he's talking about God, but if you're not familiar with Scripture already, you might think, well, he's talking about, he could be talking about his earthly dad. Maybe his dad is there in the crowd and he's trying to speak to him. But that's not the case. This statement, the fact that he's calling out to his father is profound because no one in that audience, maybe someone here might think he's talking to his earthly dad, but none of the Jews would have taken it that way. They all would have known exactly who Jesus was referring to. They would know that he's talking about God because Jesus is quoting scripture here. If you want, you can turn here, but you don't have to. Jesus is quoting Psalm 31, specifically Psalm 31, verse 5. That verse says this, into your hands I commit my spirit. Sound familiar? You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Now, that psalm was written by David and is directed to God. And it's written from the perspective of a righteous man who is being unjustly treated by his evil adversaries. So again, the Jews would know this passage of Scripture. When Jesus says that, they're going to know exactly what he is referring to. They're going to be thinking about Psalm 31. and They're going to know the context of the psalm. They're going to know what Jesus is communicating as he says these words. The Jews would have recognized that Jesus' words came, they would have known that he is maintaining with this quote And until the very end of his life, to his very last breath, that he is the righteous son of God and he is being unjustly punished by them. That he is innocent and that they are wrong. And not only that, he is driving the point home that God is his father. Because again, that whole verse is, into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. That verse is directed to God. 
not an earthly parent, his heavenly father. And so when Jesus is saying that, he's, he, he's not quoting the verse exactly. He's not saying, oh Lord, faithful God, into your, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That would be incredibly jarring for the Jews to hear. No one called God their father at that point in time. It might be common for us as Christians today to say that, but that would have been unheard of to the Jews at that point in time. Think about it. Not even Moses or Abraham called God their father. Some of the greatest men of the Jewish faith, if they wanted to even begin to approach God, like Moses at the burning bush, he had to take off his shoes. God was not familiar to people in that way. Think back about what we talked about regarding the temple and the curtain. God was unapproachable to even the most holy of people. And yet, Jesus spoke of him with a familiarity that any of us would show to our very own parents. Redeemer, we are only able to speak of God with such familiarity because Jesus truly was his own son. Meditate on that. Because Jesus truly was the son of God, our relationship with God is not only one of approachability, but it's one of an intimate familiarity and love. God God is not someone who we can only approach with formality. He is our heavenly father. We are his adopted children, and we can approach him as such. And that, again, is only because Jesus, as the Son of God himself, invites us into that relationship with him. Jesus' words assure us of that. But let's look even further into what he says. Let's look at the rest of the sentence. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Friends, this is the part that I really want us to just be in awe of. Jesus' life was not taken from him. He gave it up. There's a big difference between those two things. Notice that the passage does not simply say that Jesus died. I, I find that interesting. Why didn't Luke just say it that way? That would have been the most straightforward way to describe what's taking place here, or at least you would think. But that's not what he says. Instead, he says that Jesus breathed his last right after saying this, into your hands I commit my spirit. says that Jesus breathed his last. Why didn't he just say, Jesus died? I think the other gospel accounts shed light on that as well. Because it's almost, it seems to imply that he simply chose to stop breathing. Isn't that interesting? When I read that, I hear, I almost hear it being described as though Jesus just decided, okay, I will finally stop breathing. I'm making this choice. And that's reinforced if you look at the other gospel accounts. For one, Mark uses the exact same phrase when talking about Jesus' death. Matthew and John, though, are even more suggestive that that's what's being communicated here in the way that they phrase it. Matthew said that Jesus yielded up his spirit. He didn't die. He yielded up his spirit. 
John says that he gave up his spirit. So both of them are communicating the very same idea, just slightly different language. But do you see my point here? Every one of the gospel authors is conveying the same idea as they describe the moment of Jesus' death. His life was not taken from him. He voluntarily gave it up. He laid down his life. He offered it to them, to God, for them. It was not taken from him. And I want to show you why that is so pivotal. Turn in your Bibles now with me to John 10. I, I really do want you to turn, to, turn with me to the passage. I, I just find this so incredible to meditate on in light of what Luke says here. And it's, it's um, a couple of verses, so I want you to be able to follow along with me. We're going to look at John 10, verses 11 through 18. So listen to Jesus' own prophetic words about his death. It says this, so Jesus says this to his disciples, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my, um, I'm sorry, I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And here's the key part I want to emphasize. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from who? From my Father. So much could be said about these verses. Could preach a whole other sermon on them. Probably multiple sermons. But I want to stress one main point that we see here. Jesus did not die because he was crucified unjustly for an angry, by an angry mob. Yes, those were the circumstances in which he died, and therefore they were culpable. They were responsible in that sense for his death. But that is not ultimately why he died. Remember what Jesus said to Peter when he tried to prevent Jesus' arrest. So this was shortly before this, during this final week of Jesus' life, as um, the Jewish council came to arrest Jesus. Peter tried to stop them and actually drew his sword and um, cut someone with it. And what did Jesus say? He said, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 10 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that, that it must be so? Do you see, Jesus could have easily have stopped 
himself from dying. He could have just asked the Father to prevent it, and he would have done so. Jesus knew that. So no, the crucifixion is not ultimately why he died. He ultimately died because he chose to to give his life up as a ransom for us. That is why he died. He chose to do that for us. He chose to be the good shepherd who was guarding his sheep at the exact moment when we needed him most. He handed himself over to death so that we might be freed from it. That is why he died. He laid down his life so that all who have faith in him might have it. And he took it back up three days later, as we'll celebrate next Sunday, as evidence and proof that he really did accomplish what he set out to do. At my funeral, a pastor will commit my body to the ground and my soul to God. That's a regular part of most funeral ceremonies. When you die, the same will probably happen. Someone other than you, other than you, will commit you to God. And they will do that, not you, because you will be dead. You do not have authority to take your life up and lay it down of your own accord. None of us have that power. None of us have that ability. Jesus did. Jesus had the authority and has the authority over life and death. So instead of someone else committing him to God, he committed himself to his Father. That is a profound and incredible display of his authority, of his power, of his sonship, over his victory over death. He is unlike any of us. And that is why, as I started at the very beginning of the sermon, saying he is the main character in the story arc of history. It's none of us. It's him. He draws us into that story. We get the privilege of being a part of that. And we're getting to behold that as we read this and think about it. But no one is like him in this regard but he gets to be our Lord and Savior. He is who we get to live for. This is the, this is the God that we get to serve. He showed, that through, he showed through his dying words who he was. And that, more than any other reason, is how we know that he truly is the Son of God. And not just a Son of God, but God the Son He's not less than God. He is God himself. It is that gospel message that transforms our lives more than anything else possibly could. So to conclude, I want to leave you with one kind of primary point of application. As we've been meditating on these things, as we've been reflecting on the story, it's like, where do we go from here? In light of who Jesus is, how do we respond to such incredible news? The one takeaway, I mean, there's tons of others that you could take away from it. Please take more away from it than just this. But at the very least, the one thing I want you to take away from this message and from this account that Luke gives us is trust. By committing his life into the hands of the Father, Jesus was entrusting his life to him. 
So as Jesus entrusted his life to the Father, we can and should entrust our lives to him. Because he was redeemed, even as Psalm 31 verse 5 says, we are redeemed in him. And if, we, if, if he has the authority to die and even raise himself from the dead, as we see three days later, he is certainly capable of upholding his promises to us and is therefore trustworthy. So let me ask you this. What aren't you entrusting to him? If you're here and you haven't entrusted your life to Jesus, I encourage you to turn to him today. He has already paid the price for your sins and you cannot pay it yourself. He offers himself as your substitute if you would simply trust in the power of his death on the cross. Trust in him. If you are not ready to do that this morning and you still have questions, please feel free, feel welcome to come and talk to me after service. I would love to talk to you more about it. I know anyone else here would love to do the same. So if you have more questions, please talk. We want to help you process through that. We want to help you see why Jesus is trustworthy. So please, please consider that. If you are here and you have entrusted your life to him already, Christian brothers and sisters, you're not off the hook. I ask you the same question. What aren't you entrusting to the Son of God? in your day-to-day life? Could it be your finances, your job, maybe the care of your children, the sanctification of your spouse, maybe, your reputation? Even though Jesus promises to work for your good, what do you feel like you still have to maintain control over? for it to go all right. Entrust those things to Christ. He and he alone has the authority and power to meet your needs. Don't fight him for that control. Let him have it. He committed himself to death for you. And because of that, you can be sure that he is also committed to giving you life. And not just eternal life, but every good thing. He does not withhold any good thing from his children. Trust him. No matter what he brings into your life, trust him. He is trustworthy. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I just pray for that now. I pray that you help each and every one of us to be able to trust Christ more, that our hearts would see who he is this morning, and not just this morning, but each and every day, that we would see him to be the son of God, who he is, that we would see the power and authority and glory that he has, and that we would entrust our lives to him not just our salvation, but even the most mundane details of our day-to-day lives. Help us to trust him and help us to see the incredible joy and delight and blessing that trusting him provides us.
Jesus, thank you for going to the cross on our behalf. Thank you for taking the wrath of God and giving us access to the Father who we desperately need. Thank you for committing yourself to death so that we might have life. We pray all this in your name. Amen.